Good morning. I'm Stacia. So today's reading comes from Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Esther, chapter 4, starting with verse 1. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent for Hatok, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was mourning. So Hatok went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hatok a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hatok to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hatok to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hatok returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hatok to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hatok gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see you guys all here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons Church. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be worshiping with you, as Matthew said, um, with every aspect of our worship service, not just the songs. So uh, 
rewind the clock five years, five years ago, when we first started this church plant, we really wanted to keep an open mind about what Havel Commons at the time, High Rock Havel, would look like. Uh, we knew that many church plants had evening services. They started with evening services rather than Sunday morning services. So we thought we would give Saturday night a try. So our second ever service was an evening service. So picture all the kids that you normally see here on Sunday morning is like five years younger than they currently are. Um, I knew that it was going to be kind of an intense night, so I shortened the sermon on purpose. We sang a kid-friendly song that had motions with it, and we had our service. And from the start, things were pretty rough. We were in a new church space, first of all, uh, with some really fancy lights. You can see like a fancy lights up there. Um, everyone was doing something new for the first time because we had never done this before in an evening. And it turns out that the 4 to 6 p.m. time slot on Saturday evenings is actually the witching hour for seven to three-year-old kids. So um, the kids all came forward to do their songs, uh, to do their song, uh, but they didn't just do the motions. They actually just danced to the beat of their own individual drummers. They were twirling in the aisles. Some were laying down on the stage. These kids were just living the dream, like best church service ever, if you ask them. From my perspective... We had officially entered into Lord of the Flies territory. It was total chaos. And to be clear, the kids were great. They were great. They were just doing normal kid things. We just hadn't given them enough structure for them to thrive on this service. Uh, that night, we had some brand new people coming to visit us for the very first time. They were checking us out. And they checked us out, and then they were out. <laughs> they were one and done. They came and they saw and they got the heck out of there and never came back again. Um, Thankfully, Gary and Ellen Cushing came back again. That was their first service with us. Somehow they found the courage to give us another chance and their shot. And um, thanks, good Lord, because they are both amazing and awesome. So, whew, Gary and Ellen. Uh, the outcome of that story, another outcome, is that, as you can see, we decided that Sunday mornings were a better option for gathering as a church community. Have you ever found yourself in that kind of situation? Things are awkward, things are uncomfortable, things are unexpected, things are a little bit different, and within minutes you know that you don't really want to be there anymore. It's an awkward work party. It's just about every middle school dance you've ever been to. It's a comedy show that requires audience participation. It's a birthday party with a clown, I think. And you're counting on the seconds until you don't have to be there anymore. When you can close your car door and rest in the assurance that you never have to do that again. We steer clear of what makes us uncomfortable, and sometimes we need to heed that instinct, right? Last week we talked about Queen Vashti in Esther 1, her refusal to participate in her own objectification, that was the right and courageous thing to do. She needed to get out of there. But other times, our discomfort is not so much about our own safety, but it's actually an uncomfort, a discomfort, because we are aware of someone else's lack of safety. We're aware of someone else's grief and pain and we don't necessarily want to engage. That's the situation unfolding in Esther chapter 4. I want to quickly get the lay of the land. We're skipping from chapter 1 to chapter 4, so a lot of things have happened. Last week we met two characters, King Xerxes and Queen Vashti, and this week we're going to meet three new characters that I want to talk about. Um, after Queen Vashti was banished, you remember she was banished from the kingdom, the king's advisors abducted thousands of women and paraded them before the king so that he could choose from among them a new wife. It was kind of like a combination between a beauty pageant and The Bachelor, except the women didn't have a choice, and the only thing the king cared about was their physical beauty and sexual prowess. Sorry if you guys love The Bachelor, I just knocked it. I always do that. It's an inside Katie joke between me and her, so that's what happened. 
And as it just so happened, there was a man living in the king's court named Mordecai, and he is a Jew. He's part of the tribe of Benjamin. He's actually a descendant of King Saul himself. And as it so happened, Mordecai has a cousin, a young woman named Hadassah, who was very beautiful. Her mother and father had died, so she is an orphan. Mordecai, seeing her in need, adopts her into his family and raises her as his own daughter. And because she's very beautiful, Hadassah, using her Persian-sounding name Esther, was forced into this contest to become the new queen. The passive verbs in this passage make it clear that these things are happening to her. They're happening to Esther. She's not choosing them. It's not her fault. It's not Mordecai's fault. They have no choice in the matter. It just is. Then the verbs shift actually to active tense, interestingly enough, and it lets us know that Esther, despite of the fact that these things were happening to her, is actively trying to do things to make the best of a horrible situation, doing what she could do to survive. And it turns out she made an impression, not only because of her appearance, but also because of the way she carried herself. She's immediately given special treatment. She's assigned seven maids from the palace to care for her, and she's given the very best rooms in the land, all in preparation for her one night with the king. And this whole time, this whole time, Esther is following a rule, a strict rule that her uncle or her cousin Mordecai gave her. He told her, no matter what, Esther, hide the fact that you're Jewish. No matter what, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. I want you to think for a second about the effort that that would have taken. She's already lost her parents. She's already an orphan. And on top of that, to survive, she needs to become a brand new person. She needs to pass as Persian in the palace, no less. She has to speak the language without any hint of an accent. She has to overhaul her mannerisms. She has to change her appearance. She has to change her clothing to survive. And so she does. And it worked. All her efforts worked. The king chooses Esther, and he puts the crown on her head and declares her queen instead of Vashti. All right, so we got two new characters, Mordecai, we've got Esther. These are Jews in the capital city of Susa trying to survive. All right, the fourth guy. Fourth character, his name is Haman. This is Esther chapter 3, summary. Sometime later, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Amadatha, the Agite, to all the, over all the other nobles, mass, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. But Mordecai refused. Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Now, in chapter 3, the author of Esther goes out of his way to make sure that we understand the source of this enmity between Haman and Mordecai. These two men, it turns out, are ancient enemies if you look at their lineage. Their families had fought each other. Their families had killed each other for generations. So their conflict is actually personal. They don't like each other. So when Mordecai would not bow to him, Haman decided to take it to another level. This is verse 6, chapter 3. He said, it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That's not enough. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire. So he goes to the king and tells the king, a certain group of people living among you is scattered throughout the provinces. They keep to themselves. They refuse to obey your laws. It's not in the king's interest to let them live. So Xerxes doesn't really give it a second thought. He's pretty nonchalant. Why should he care about one insignificant group among the groups that he rules? So he agrees to Haman's demands, and he sends a decree throughout all the land so that on the appointed day, which is about a year from now, on the appointed day, all the people in all the land would be ready to do their duty and to pick up weapons and to kill the Jews living among them. The Jewish people had suffered before, but for the first time, and unfortunately not the last time, they are facing annihilation. All Jews, young and old, men and women, 
children were doomed. What hope did they have against Haman's hatred? What hope did they have against Xerxes' power? What hope did they have when there was a public out there ordered to carry out death sentences in the streets? Well, they had Mordecai. When Mordecai, we're in Esther 4 now, learned what had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city, crying with a loud and a bitter wail. Now, I've never torn my clothes like this. I've never worn scratchy burlap. I've never covered my face with ashes. So I haven't done what Mordecai is doing here in this passage. It doesn't seem very comfortable to me to do. And that's the whole point of what Mordecai is doing. Mordecai is lamenting. Mordecai is lamenting. Laments are prayers. They're born out of suffering. They're born out of need. A lament is a cry of pain that comes from a deep place within us when we're so raw and so vulnerable and so honest that it pours out of us like a tormented wail. A wail that says things are not as they should be. A wail begging God to intervene, to engage, and to end the suffering that we're experiencing. We don't merely speak laments with our voices. We feel them in our whole bodies. Hence the scratchy burlap. Hence the ashes on the face. We feel lament. Mordecai, faced with the horror of genocide, went out into the city, a loud and bitter wail peeling from his soul. Of course, King Xerxes would not allow this kind of lament or grief within the palace. Kings don't grieve, and they don't want to hear grieving. So Mordecai can't come into the palace, but he can go right up to the gates. So he goes right up to the gates, because maybe at the gates, if he's loud enough, he'll catch the ear of the person he really cares about. Not Xerxes, but his cousin, the girl that he raised as his own, Esther. And Esther does hear his cry. She hears him. Verse 4, when her servants tell her about his grief, she's deeply distressed. She's deeply distressed. So she sends him new clothes. <laughs> she sends him new clothes. Interesting, right? Esther's first response to Mordecai's grief is to give him new clothes so that he can get out of the burlap that he's wearing, right? So that he can clean off the ashes, so that he can stop lamenting. You know, typically people with power are uncomfortable or even offended when they hear cries like these of those who are suffering. That's why Xerxes lives behind the palace walls. It's the equivalent of, hello, upset person. Can you please quiet down? You are making quite the scene. Please come back when you're ready to talk in a more civilized manner. I'm sure I can check my calendar and squeeze you in at some future date. You see, one of the privileges of having power is being able to choose whether or not to engage in the suffering of another. If you have power, you can choose to look the other way. Whereas those who are suffering can't look away because they're experiencing the suffering. Soon Chan Ra argues that for the most part, this is what the American church has historically done, turned away from laments. If you look historically and you look with a wide angle lens, a lot of churches have a lot and are full of people who have a lot. And if you have a lot, you don't tend to lament very much. You tend to celebrate. Why change things when things are going so well for you? Case in point, Rod did a survey of all the major liturgical traditions in America. Lutheran, Episcopal, Catholic, United Methodist. And that survey revealed that although 
the Psalms of Lament make up over 40% of the Psalms in our Bible. Over 40% of the Psalms in our Bible are laments. Psalms of Lament are the most often omitted from books of worship, from liturgical practices, from books of prayer. If you look at the most popular contemporary Christian music played in churches today, they are not laments. They're songs of praise. Here's a snapshot, top 100 right now. Goodness of God, great are you, Lord. How great is our God. What a beautiful name. 10,000 reasons. Living hope. Glorious day. Raise a hallelujah. Great songs. Powerful songs. We sing these songs. These are true songs. I'm not knocking these songs. I'm just saying that we're missing some songs. We're missing songs of lament. Now, there are Christian communities full of people who have suffered and struggled for survival who continue to feel inequity and injustice. And in those churches, deep-seated, long-standing, historic suffering is given expression. And in those churches, you'll hear laments. You'll hear people crying out, naming what's wrong with the world and asking God to change it and to make it right. So my point isn't that lament is better or more accurate than praise. My point is that we actually need both. The fullness of the gospel message occurs at the intersection of praise and laments. We need Good Friday, right? And we need Easter. We need the cross and the resurrection. That's my first point. We need both. My second point is that if all we ever do is celebrate and praise, then we actually lose the ability to sing lament, and we lose the ability to hear lament. If we stay in the comfort of the palace, we will ignore the suffering that's happening at the gates. I read in one estimate that Mordecai, when he was wailing at the palace gates, Esther had been queen at that point for about three years, and maybe even up to eight years, some estimates said, which means years of getting used to life in the palace, years of being Persian, years of growing disconnected from the experiences of those at the gates. So when Esther first hears Mordecai's lament, probably out of concern for him, she actually wants him to stop lamenting, and he refuses He doesn't accept the clothes she offers. He refuses. He continues to grieve at the gates. And only then, only after he continues to grieve, only after he continues to lament, did his song actually pierce her heart. Esther slows down, and she stops and listens. And she actually finally asks, why are you grieving, Mordecai? Like, what's wrong? So he tells her, the king had ordered the death of all the Jews. And in that moment, Esther's whole world changed. Mordecai had always told her to conceal her Jewish identity, but now Mordecai is reminding Esther that she was actually not Persian. She's actually Jewish. She realized that right outside the palace walls, the people, her people, are in danger. And Mordecai says, now is the time to take off the mask, Esther. Now is the time. Go to the king and beg for mercy and plead for your people, verse 8. Esther protests, everyone knows that if you appear before the king without first being summoned, you'll be killed. Plus, the king hasn't even asked for me in 30 days. What influence could she possibly have? And Mordecai's response is brutally honest, right? Don't think for a moment that you'll escape when all the others are killed. Her privileged status won't save her. Like it or not, she's involved. Like it or not, she's involved, and actually she's uniquely positioned to intervene. Verse 14, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. We're two sermons into the book of Esther. 
And I haven't even brought up one of his most interesting features, which is that God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. God doesn't ever say anything. God doesn't ever do anything in Esther. Instead, we have moments like this one. Mordecai pleading with Esther, you're the right person at the right place at the right time. These aren't random events. Her being queen, her being Jewish, isn't a coincidence. The queen of Persia is Jewish, not a coincidence. She alone is in position to put her life on the line to save her people, and that's exactly what she does. And King Xerxes reverses his order. Miraculously, he reverses his order, something kings don't do. Kings don't revoke irrevocable orders, but he does. And Jews to this day still celebrate this moment. They celebrate Esther's bravery with a celebration called Purim. And during Purim, they read the whole book of Esther. They give charity to at least two needy individuals. They give the gift of food to at least one other person. And then they party. They just celebrate God's deliverance and grace. But I'm not sure that any of that happens if Mordecai doesn't lament in the first place. If Mordecai doesn't go before Esther and lament to make her see the suffering of the people. Lament has the same power for us, the power to shake us awake out of our comfortable palaces. Lament reorients us. Lament transforms us so that we're listening to the pain of our world and to the suffering of another. But it's so hard to hear hard things. It doesn't feel good. And there are just so many hard things. We are subject to an unceasing stream of media content bombarding us as never before to the world's pain and suffering. The tragedies hit us with such rapid succession that we don't even have time to process one before the next one hits. Before we've even had time to process the trauma we witnessed, we're dealing with another school shooting or another racial hate crime or another sexual abuse headline, another military offensive, another earthquake, another grieving person at the gates. And it is a lot to take in. As many of you know, our family is invested in foster and adoptive care. And a couple years ago, I signed up to receive a daily email from the good people at Fostering Hope of the Merrimack Valley. And in each email, it asked me to pray for a specific child in the foster system living right here in our area, right here in the Merrimack Valley, a child who is waiting for an adoptive home. And so every morning, an email Pray for Carter from New Hampshire, who is waiting for an adoptive family. Carter is 10 years old and has an energetic spirit. Carter is doing well in school and enjoys playing with others. Carter desperately wants to be accepted by a loving and nurturing family. And every morning, a picture. And for a long time, I opened each email, and I prayed for each kid. I'd pray for Annabelle, who loves wearing pink and purple. And I'd pray for Abriana, who once who wants to help with cooking and chores. And I'd pray for Bobby, a happy, playful three-year-old who enjoys reading stories with others. Every morning, a story, and every morning, a picture. And eventually, I stopped opening the emails. And I'm ashamed to admit that, but I stopped opening them because it was too much for me. It was too many kids and too much brokenness, and I didn't want to see those faces, and I didn't want to know the names, and I didn't want to read the stories. It was too much, and I looked the other way. I got the emails every morning, but I didn't open them. As Christy reminded me this week, compassion fatigue is a real thing. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. It's not that we don't care. It's not that we don't care, because we do. 
We care. We just can't carry the pain of the whole world. It's too much. It's too heavy. We're not strong enough. There is only one who is strong enough. Only one who is able to carry the weight of all of our pain and all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And he carried it all the way to the cross. And on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. And thank God, like thank God. Because we cannot heal the whole world. We cannot heal the whole world. We cannot save the whole world. We cannot restore the whole world. Jesus has done that. And he is doing that, and he will do that until it's done. And in the meantime, we are invited to help. We are invited to help, if not at the global level, at least at the neighborhood level, which is what our focus has been this whole series. So just this week, I felt really convicted, and I decided to open those emails again and to listen to the laments in my own neighborhood. Even if I cannot take another child into our home right now, and I cannot take another child into our home right now, even if I can't fix all that's broken, and I can't fix all that's broken, I can open those emails, and I can see those kids who are waiting for homes, and I can pray for those kids by their names, and I can do that. I can do that. Listening to laments is not fun or easy, but we're called to. So this morning, I actually wonder if we can each allow ourselves to hear just one lament we can each allow ourselves to hear just one lament. Esther heard one person, and Mordecai's cry reoriented her to the people who were hurting right outside her palace walls, and laments motivated her to do something about it. If we focus our attention on one voice, maybe we can stay engaged with that one voice and that one person without getting exhausted. Maybe we can slow down and listen to that one voice. And let all the tears come out, because lament takes time. And let the lament run its course. Let the lament flow until it can't flow anymore. Until we feel what the other person feels. And start asking ourselves, why is this suffering happening? And as we seek the source of that suffering, of that pain, like, why is this happening? My encouragement is that we resist the pressure to jump to praise too quickly. It's like tempting to just go right to praise and celebration, but resist that temptation. Resist the temptation to fly to quick fixes or easy answers to what, in reality, are very complex issues. And once we've taken the time, once we've looked for the cause of suffering, once we've allowed ourselves to feel the pain ourselves, I think then, only then, can we offer something else. We can offer to potentially do something about the suffering the way that Esther did, the way that Jesus did. We can potentially intervene and do something to alleviate that pain in front of us. But if we're gonna do that, we've gotta first listen to the lament. And that's what I wanna sit with this morning, the listening to the lament part. Last year during Lent, we wrote down our own lament offerings, if you guys remember this, on the little brown cards in the pews, and we collected them all each week. And then for Easter, Ben covered our laments with the hope of new life in this beautiful piece of art. All of our laments covered with this new life. Not to silence the grief, not to pretend it's not there, but to remind us that God has heard us and God has intervened for us. God has done something. Jesus has taken our pain and suffering and our anguished cries of how long into himself. 
He has taken our pain and he has made it his pain and then transforms it. Ashes into beauty, death into resurrection. So if you're willing to, I want to close with a little bit of participation this morning. I invite you to take one of those brown cards, maybe at the back of the communication card, and I want you to write down a lament that you hear this morning. What voice do you hear in your neighborhood or what voice do you hear in your own heart? Maybe it's a specific grief or loss or pain that you felt personally. Like maybe you're singing a lament this morning. You've experienced something so hard, so heavy, so horrific that your lament is the one you want to write down. Or maybe it's a lament that you're hearing at the palace gates. Maybe it's a lament that you hear at the gates of your house or your neighborhood or your community. Maybe it's even coming from someone else in this very room that you know is hurting. But I'd love it if you would write down a lament that you hear this morning. Just one. One voice. And I think for the next few minutes, I'm going to have the band come forward. You guys can come up now. They're going to play a song for us. Uh, we're not going to sing it. We're going to stay seated. They're going to play a song for us. And as they play, I want you to sit with the lament that you write down and hear it. Like, hear the lament and allow yourself to feel it. Be present to this suffering, to this pain. And when you leave today, I invite you to take that card with you. We're not going to collect them. I want you to take it with you in the hopes that it will change you and in the hopes that it might even change the way you live and what you do. Does that make sense? Be cool? Okay. Um, that's what we're going to do. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll spend this moment in lament before the Lord.